Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nahum Siegel Network, NahumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And we are back after, well, you know, pretty much the whole month of September. Actually, the whole month of September. Yantiv uh, Chagim, it's, it's been a challenge for those of us who have uh, tried to enjoy the Jewish holidays and actually have gainful employment, as I'm sure many of you out there no, and uh, that was a transition coming from the end of August into Labor Day. Wow, so uh, what a great schedule this way. So coming back to it, I don't want to jump right back into the political fray. There's so much going on uh, with the debt ceiling, with the uh, with the infrastructure package, with the Build Back Better package, and all kinds of turmoil, the circular firing squad that we have amongst Democrats in Washington and the Republicans uh, not willing to play ball in any way, shape, or form. Biden taking a hit in the numbers. We're not going to talk about any of that this week. Uh, I like to talk about the things we're not going to talk about. But what we are going to talk about is 30 years after a milestone watershed event of Jewish history, Jewish political history, here, right here in New York City, uh, the Crown Heights pogrom. I'm going to go there. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to say it was a pogrom as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we have a, Elliot Kaufman, the letters editor for the Wall Street Journal, who wrote a wonderful piece that everybody should read about revisiting the Crown Heights riots, what happened, what the implications are. And it's particularly relevant uh, these days because I think the presumptive, I don't want to say presumptive, uh, the odds on favorite to become mayor of New York City is one Eric Adams, who got his political start in Crown Heights in that neighborhood, representing it in the New York State Senate, then became Book and Borough president, has maintained a very strong relationship with the Crown Heights Jewish community, and uh, the attitudes towards policing, defund the police, don't defund the police, Black Lives Matter, all these things play into some of that history that happened way back when Way back when, in 1999, Elliot Kaufman, who is originally from Toronto, as I said, now at the Wall Street Journal, now lives in New York. Elliot, welcome to Spin Class. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Michael. So, Elliot, uh, you've done you've done some of the history. Take us through a lot of people and a lot of listeners out there. This happened so long ago; they might not even remember the exact details of what happened. And you've gone through this, and you've looked at some of the archives. You looked at some of the information. Remind us. What happened in Crown Heights back then in August of 1991 and why it's so important? Okay, sure. Uh, I think it probably starts to, uh, it uh, probably helps to start with um, a few background details, which is which will give you a sense of the atmosphere at the time. So in the same year, 1991, you have the release of the, of the, of the Nation of Islam's book, uh, the secret relationship between blacks and Jews, which is an anti-Semitic book. It basically blames the Jews for the slave trade. It's been refuted many, many times, but of, but of course had a very large influence in the area, black community on the streets. And this would come up from rioters on the streets yelling things about Jews and slavery, Jewish slave masters, that kind of thing. So that's sort of in the air. But then even more directly, for the two weeks before the Crown Heights riot, the major story in New York was about Leonard Jeffries, who was the chair of black studies at the City College of New York, who had, who had um, given a speech with some of these same things, Jews 
and the slave trade, Jews keeping down blacks, Jews in Hollywood destroying the black image, and so forth and so on. Now, in reaction to Jewish condemnation of Jeffries, um, the black community, black leadership was pretty quiet on this point. Um, a condemnation went through Albany, could not get the signature of a single black lawmaker there. Al Sharpton rejected the criticism forthrightly, saying, if the Jews want to get it on, tell them to pin their yarmulkes back and come to my house. He said that only a few weeks before what set off the riot. So that's the kind of background in the air, in addition to all the sorts of Crown Heights community tensions that had been going on for decades that maybe we can get into later. So, okay, 30 years ago, a few months, August 19th, 1991, a car accident happens. The Rebbe is uh, coming back from... from um, the Ohel with his motorcade um, driving on President Street in, in Crown Heights. He crosses Utica Avenue. His car goes through a green light. Police escort goes through a green light. The third car in the motorcade, driven by a man named Yosef Lish, um, people disagree, but most likely passes through a red light, runs a red light ends up crashing into a car traveling northbound on Utica. His car uh, careens actually many, many feet onto the sidewalk, slams into two black children, um, children of Guyanese immigrants actually, uh, hits them Gavin and Angela Cato. Gavin Cato, seven years old, pins them against against a wall. Tragically, Gavin Cato dies, Angela Cato severely injured. So here, here, here you have this major incident. Now, things like this do happen. Uh, in fact, a similar thing happened to a Hasidic boy, a black driver in 1986. There had been sort of 22 examples of something like this, a traffic accident, somebody dies, some driver error, but not enough for there to be real criminal charges. Um, these things do happen, and they usually don't lead to riots. But what happened there that kind of made this thing explode? So Yosef Lish, he gets out of the car after the accident, tries to help. Immediately, he is set upon and, um, and attacked. There's, there's uh, this sort of idea, uh, anger, in anger in the air, anti-Semitism, Jew hatred in the air. Uh, police arrive, there who are kind of close to there on the scene, try to get things under control, struggle until very quickly actually two ambulances arrive. Both of them arrived in the same minute, but Hatzalah arrived first. The city arrived later that same minute. Police are struggling just to, you know, get a hold of the situation. They say Hatzalah just take these injured Jews out of there, make our lives easier. Maybe that'll stop the kind of violence here. The city medics, they will handle the injured children, black children. Uh, this was a very understandable decision, I think, in the moment. However, it ended up seeding all of these rumors that Hatzalah had only cared about the Jews, that they're this, you know, as Sharpton put it, 
later in the week, even after all the riot had happened, he called it in apartheid, ambulance service, all of these sorts of things. Rumors spread. Um, and it's a very hot night. The crowd swells out there, slowly getting more violent, confrontations with the police. Police had tried to mobilize, but they were extremely slow. And many people think that if the police had been able to mobilize in force that first night, even if they didn't really do anything, they could have that critical mass of numbers to sort of uh, put some fear into the crowd and stop it from growing more and more violent, more and more angry. That didn't happen. So instead, you have these minor confrontations grow into larger confrontations. A couple agitators in the crowd start saying things like, the Jews get everything they want. The police protects them, not us. The Jews are killing our children. And then finally, a man, Charles, uh, Charles Price, 37-year-old heroin addict, petty thief in the crowd, says, you know what? I'm going into the Jew neighborhood. Who's, uh, who's with me? And it turns out a number of people were with him. Bands split off from that main area, which police never really got under control, and and um, go down Kingston Avenue into Jewish areas, explicitly target them, find Jews unlucky enough to be on the street, beat them up with you know bottles, punch them, kick them on the ground. They throw rocks, breaking the windows of Jewish homes, cars outside Jewish homes. They overturn cars. And then one group led by the same man, Charles Price, runs into Yankel Rosenbaum, 29-year-old Orthodox, um, Orthodox Jewish student in New York to do archival research at the YIVO Institute. Uh, they see him. He's dressed, you know, looks like an Orthodox Jew. They say, there's one. Let's go get him. Witnesses heard them say this. Uh, they run there, beat him up. He's stabbed four times in the back. Uh, a fractured skull he suffers. Uh, taken to the hospital. Uh, the hospital then messes everything up, misses one of his wounds. Ridiculous treatment. He dies. Um, before that, he was able to identify one of his killers, uh, which ends up being a whole story that maybe I can tell you about afterward. But um, uh, in the meantime, you have this huge violence that night, Monday night, August 19th. Uh, it ends not when police put it down, but when heavy rain comes. Okay, the rioters leave heavy rain. Police were very slow to mobilize and never got there in full force until around 1.30, a.m. Um, police then assume that, okay, there was this one action. It led to violence. It was terrible, but it's basically over. And that could have happened. It could have happened even though there were demonstrations planned for the next day. Police just set up a normal kind of, we're going to watch a protest. They weren't ready for a riot, not in the least. But what happened the next day is that outside agitators arrived. Al Sharpton, Herbert uh, Daughtry. Uh, Daughtry, Sonny Carson, uh, Colin Moore, familiar names maybe from that era, especially Sharpton, who still has this you know national TV platform, uh, still meets with you know presidents. I think he went to the Obama White House 70 times. Um, 
Anyway, they give inflammatory speeches, rile the crowd up, and demonstrations quickly turn into anti-Semitic hate fest, crowds chanting, hail Hitler, Hitler should have finished the job, etc. Uh, they go outside 770, get into uh, shoving matches with people there. Nighttime, um, nighttime comes, it turns into an even bigger riot that night. Police are totally unprepared for what happens. And in talking to people who were there, including Yehudis Groner, Rib uh, the widow of the late Rabbi Label Groner, um, she was on the corner where this stuff um, was taking off and just seeing police stand there and not do anything about it. And that is what happened Tuesday night. Police were standing there and getting pummeled by bottles, by rocks, by all this stuff, until the point where they had to turn around and run back to their precinct. Historian Edward Shapiro calls it one of the most embarrassing moments in the history of the force. Now, this continued Wednesday night. Police, again, were given the same orders, kind of, uh, you know, uh, don't provoke the rioters, don't do anything that could make it worse, stand there in force, contain them, stand there in fixed posts that allow roving bands of rioters to, you know, just kind of run circles around them. And Wednesday afternoon, there was this really, um, I mean, outrageous scene where um, police commissioner Lee Brown gave a press conference praising the police for their, you know, restraint uh, and said the situation is under control. Police acted very well. They didn't inflame anything. You know, we got this. Less than an hour later, driving to... Crown Heights, he himself was attacked. He had to call in a 1013 police radio call for help. Nine officers were wounded saving him in that situation. That's the an officer comes, distress call, that, uh, exactly. just to be clear. Exactly. But, but there comes David Dinkins. He's under attack there. He can't, he can't uh, you know, speak to the crowd. And then I'll just finish up here. Only after they personally are attacked. It took that. Did they then that night um, say, okay, uh, let's enforce the law here. Let's actually stop lawbreakers. Ray Kelly, who was, sort, who was the deputy commissioner at the time, breaks the chain of command. He goes to Lee Brown and Dinkins. They say, okay, it's time. He draws up a plan. Nothing so complicated, but saturate the area, foot patrols, mobile units, arrest units, nab all of these sort of instigators in the crowd. The line uh, the following morning was, if anyone does anything, arrest them. And they did that. There were more arrests Thursday than the previous three days combined. And uh, just like that, the riot was over. Arresting instigators didn't inflame the uh, crowd. It actually put an end to the, vi to the violence. So, Elliot, what do we know 30 years later about the communications within the police department? And if Ray Kelly, who uh, had a very distinguished career as police commissioner in the Bloomberg years, uh, was able to put this down in a matter of hours uh, on the third, third or fourth day, uh, depending on where you're counting from, 
uh, then why was he not able to do it? Or why was the department unable to do it in uh, on Monday or Tuesday? You know, the, where was where was the failure? Is the failure of command, failure of leadership, failure of of will, uh, failure of tactics? I mean, what do we know 30 years later about the failures? I mean, there was a very damning report, the Drew Denty Commission. There was a lot out there. But we know no, we, we obviously should know more now than we did even then. It's an excellent question. Um, I mean, let me set the scene for you. So you have Lee Brown as police commissioner. His nickname on the force was out of town Lee Brown. So he's not the most emphatic, uh, you know, with it commissioner. The chief of department had been Robert Johnston, who had sort of ruled the department with an iron fist for eight years. He had retired four days before the riot. The new chief was on vacation for the riot. So you have an acting chief stepping in, Joe uh, Borelli, um, who was later scolded uh, in the state report that you mentioned for not being assertive at all. little understandable. He was sort of thrust into this role, but still... You also have a yeah, chief but presumably of the he's a member of the department for quite some time. You know, it's not <laughs> it's like you point. know, it's not like they took him off the street one day and said, "Hey, by the way, you want to be police chief?" And this is it, right? Somebody had to step up. Uh, and then you had the chief of patrol who was on his first day on the job. You had a new chief in Brooklyn North. The riot took place right on the boundary between Brooklyn North and Brooklyn South. So you have some confusion in the police here. All of these things that help explain why things weren't as quick, but as you say, don't excuse it. Because at the end of the day, there's a riot going on. There are trained police officers there, police veterans. Someone has to do something. And so the question is, why not? Now, I got to put this question to, to um, Ray Kelly, actually, a month ago. And he... Um, he thinks it was two things. He thinks, one, the police were not ready for it, as in they did not know what to do. They didn't have the adequate training at the time. I mean, there's one story about how uh, they wanted to call in a citywide mobilization, but they ended up not doing so because they hadn't actually done that in so long that they were worried to put that over the radio would actually confuse everyone. Uh, police wouldn't even understand the code because it hadn't been, you know, called in so long. So police weren't ready for this sort of thing. They didn't have the kind of tactics. I mean, they stuck to this containment strategy, which makes sense at the very outset. You don't want the riot to spread, and that's part of police best practices. But there's a whole other half to it, which is restore order. First you contain it, then you restore order. They contained it and never restored order. They just left the Jews at the mercy of the rioters. Uh, so the, you know, something in the tactics were, were all off. And I think you can't explain it alone just off police didn't know how to put down a riot. Okay. Um, it wasn't that complicated. Arrest instigators, send enough men there that it makes instigators uncomfortable. It's not, in the end, it's not rocket science. Ray Kelly's second explanation was essentially political correctness and I would take it I would take it further um, the message in the department for decades really since the mayoralty of John Lindsay 
so we're going back some time here, had been that the surest way to, to throw away your decade-long career on the force is to have some kind of confrontation with minority rioters, minority protesters, minority victims, whatever you want to call it, okay? Um, just a few years earlier, 1988 Tompkins Square riot, 20-year police officer, veteran, respected, uh, got thrown off the force. Did he do anything wrong there? He actually wasn't even there when police responded to the riot and there was some bad reports. It didn't look good. It never looks good is the story. Anyways, somebody had to be, you know, blamed. Who gets blamed? Not the mayor. Senior police get blamed. And so they had developed a kind of philosophy on the force of, you know, restraint. Let's call it Havlaga or something, okay? Uh, you know, um, uh, whatever you do, don't do anything was the guiding sort of philosophy. And I guess the idea was until we get an explicit order from the mayor, until we have political cover, we're not going in there. We're not risking some kind of, you know, confrontation that we're going to get thrown under, uh, under, um, under the bus, the bus. for. Yep. Now, so, you know, uh, that's why you end up with police officers so frustrated getting these orders, hold fast, just hold the line, just stand there. And it got so bad that the police union actually threatened a, you know, job action in the middle of the riot, not necessarily so they could help the Jews, but so their own police officers wouldn't be under threat. 150 police officers were wounded, not because they were going in there, but because they were sitting ducks there. So I think you have this culture on the, um, you know, police force. I mean, the way, the way, the way Ray Kelly puts it is that you have a black police commissioner, a black mayor, a new black police chief. The police chiefs on the, you know over there think they get the message, and the message they think they get is, let's not cause any problems with the black community right now. Don't rock the um, boat. Right. Don't rock the boat, exactly. And then I think we get to another question. If you want, I can address it, which is, why didn't Dinkins give the order to, you know, put it down right away? Yeah, very quickly, because um, I want to, I have some more follow-up questions, so let's... Okay, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, you know, long... No, way. not at all. Yeah. This is uh, yeah. a absolutely fascinating, and as I said, there's so many people who don't even remember, also, you know, the context of the fact that pre-COVID, I know it's been, seems like forever ago, but we had a rash of anti-Semitic attacks in the city of... Mm -hmm. uh, identifiably orthodox jews and i want to get into that context in a second what you think that you know the, what we can learn and have the police learned from crown heights uh i think they have to some degree but you know has the city learned and etc but make your last point elliot yeah so i mean everyone i talk to in lubavitch crown heights believes that david dinkins gave the police a direct order to let the protesters vent, let the rioters vent. This is a very widespread belief. Now, there is not evidence of this. That doesn't mean it, it, it didn't happen, but we can't prove it. I think what is most likely based on what we do know is in a certain way just as damning 
And it's that David Dinkins didn't really do anything. Um, it's not that he said, let the Jews suffer. It's that he just he just didn't get around to it. I don't know if that's an improvement even. Uh, right. You know, um, he, you know, called that, uh, you know, community relations organizations should have meetings. Okay, very nice. But the time was passed for that sort of thing. And uh, he later tried to claim to the state investigators that he that he just didn't know what was happening. He just didn't realize how bad it was. And the state investigation, you know, which was not being carried out by by, you know, Republicans, um, comes inches from calling him and his senior aides liars for saying yeah. this, because there is just no way they didn't know. Um, and I, w- I should and- also point out that one of uh, the Dinkins staffers at the time who probably who supposedly knew is our, is the current mayor, uh, Bill de Blasio, uh, who was engaged at, at, in the time. But Elliot, I, I want to skip ahead for a second to 2021 and the context of, you know, the police and, you know, the back the blue argument. And, you know, I also want to say that community relations, if you ask the people in Crown Heights, uh, you know, in the last 30 years have have are general are, are generally very good. I don't want to say utopian, but they're very good. Uh, and uh, certainly the Jews and the African-American community, the Caribbean-American community have come together uh, very significantly. That's not necessarily the case in some other neighborhoods um, where there's a lot of friction. Uh, we certainly saw Jersey City uh, back then. You know, that was obviously a very different type of police response, and we've seen that uh, add that. So what are the lessons learned? And, you know, we, we only have a couple minutes left, but I want to get your perspective on that, having now studied this. Yeah. Um, well, with, with community relations, um, it seems like things have, things have improved. You know, Jews there do say, on the streets, it doesn't feel necessarily the same kind of hatred or bad energy in the air. That's what Isaac Bitton told me, who was actually attacked famously in the riot. Uh, however, I was talking to Reverend Rashad Moore of First Baptist Church there. He says, community relations is a misnomer. There are no relations. So you hear different things depending on who you talk to. But um, what have we learned? I think it's, I mean, I think the riot helped set off Number one, the election of Mayor Giuliani, especially with the acquittal of one of the murderers and then the state re, uh, report coming just before uh, the election. It kind of helped spark a new philosophy and a renewal of the city, the sense that we're not going to tolerate law breaking just because it's from a politically protected constituency and police are going to enforce the law without regard to politics. And when you do that, you don't run the risk of a one-night event turning into a three- or four-day riot. You know, we are able to put these things down. My worry is the same kind of philosophy of blame the police, force the, you know, police to sort of think of the political calculus before they act is having a resurgence in New York, but also around the country. And if that same philosophy of restraint develops, and one good sign that it won't, maybe the the election of of Eric Adams. I'm hopeful, but we will see. Uh, you know, in the riots of the summer, many residents of Crown Heights thought, 
you know, if there was another agitator like Sharpton, like Daughtry, like these guys, and someone pointed their finger at the Jews, could this sort of thing happen again? Would Bill de Blasio have stepped up and really made sure police got in there and, uh, you know, sort of acted? The people I spoke to weren't confident of that at all. Right. Well, it certainly seemed that the rioters slash looters uh, were given carte blanche in midtown Manhattan uh, at, to uh, loot and create mayhem. And police were essentially told to stand by while it happened. I mean, not every picture is entirely gives you the entire perspective, but it certainly seems that, that, that that's the case. And, you know, we, we also, you know, the broken windows theory of policing, you know, I want to add, you know, with with, with that, um, you know, that kind of fell out of favor uh, in, in a lot of degree, you know, to some degree, it, even in New York City. And, uh, you know, how, what does that mean for from a, you know, policing has a philosophy to it as well. So maybe just uh, quickly, uh, you know, talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the sense of who owns the streets. Um, are you going to are you going to make clear that law prevails on the sidewalk? And you can give various rationales, compassion over incarceration to kind of justify not cracking down on some of these smaller crimes or even larger crimes. And, you know, you see repeat offenders released and uh, released. But when you do this, you hand over control of various areas. I think people saw this during the pandemic, especially areas of the city handed over to bad elements, non-law abiding elements and when that happens you sort of invite a greater disorder and you know progressive theories of policing after being dormant for many years while the crime wave was sort of put under control because crime was you know low they could be tried out once again experimented once again theories of addressing root causes rather than the more straightforward approach of you know, tackling crime, um, they get their shot and you see a violent crime wave last year. It hasn't abated this year. And uh, I think New Yorkers especially are looking to Eric Adams to reverse this trend. And during the, uh, you know, campaign, he more or less said he, he uh, would. Now, I'd like to point out, David Dinkins said that also. He actually campaigned as a tough on crime guy right. he said listen i'm black nobody can you know call me racist i'll go at the you know i will you know address black crime and then it got complicated his constituencies and so forth i hope it won't get similarly complicated for eric adams well i think it's very clear at the time that the defund the police and other of these slogans were uh were out there and there was this big uh, push even in the Democratic primary that Eric Adams on a message of public safety was certainly the one uh, to prevail in the Democratic primary. So hopefully that's a positive sign. Elliot Kaufman, I really want to thank you for uh, taking us back uh, 30 years ago with this perspective on the Crown Heights uh, pogrom, the Crown Heights riots, uh, and how instructive it is and how, how really we need to keep that in mind uh, politically uh, as, uh, as people vote uh, you know, in a month. Uh, you know, keep that in mind. That public safety is a priority. We can't keep uh, uh, allowing uh, uh, bad elements to rule rule our streets. So thank you so much for joining us here on Spin Class. Thank you. 
And that's it for this week here on Spin Class, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week.